Hello and welcome to this episode of Outdoor Lives. My name is Mike Crane. I'm the author of Nature of Snowdonia and the forthcoming Mountain Leader book. This podcast is free to air, ad-free and music-free. You can find out more about me and my workshops and e-learning modules at www.mycrane.co.uk. But we're not here to talk to me today. We're here to talk to my guest. My guest is Rachel Crewsmith. Rachel is a mountaineering instructor, mountain bike leader, a former hockey international, and currently making a name for herself as a compare at events like the Kendall Mountain Film Festival and the Women in Mountain Training Conference. She's going to be on stage again soon, uh, and I hope to bump into her in Kendall. But until then, we just thought we'd get together and have a little chat about um, what it's like being a mountaineering instructor with a very diverse portfolio. So, Rachel, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, Mike. Yeah, doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I actually want to start at the beginning because it always fascinates people how you got into the outdoors because you're an expert mountaineer and an expert mountain biker. That doesn't happen overnight. Well, I actually didn't really go into the outdoors in the way you're probably thinking when I was a young person. Um, I grew up in rural Leicestershire. So I spent a lot of time outside, but mostly in the hedge or chasing sheep around. Um, but my school had a really strong orienteering club. So I started orienteering when I was about 11. And I suppose that's where my love of going to wild spaces that aren't, you know, the, the square mile around my home comes from. And then we went on a school trip when I was 12 to Arran, slept in the Corrie and Satanix Village Hall, and went up Goatfell. And I think that's where it all started for me. But I didn't, um, I didn't go hill walking or climbing until I was 19 or so. Um, I mostly just played hockey. That's, I was obsessed with hockey. So I just all I wanted to do was play team sport. And you took that to quite a high standard now, I know the hockey. Was there a shift at university then? I mean, you know, I mirrors myself. I played cricket, football when I was a kid, but climbing just took over for me. How, how did that transition work for you? Yeah, I went to Nepal when I was 19. I did a traditional gap year. Uh, and my hockey coach at school said, oh, go to Nepal. And I went, oh, OK. You know, I didn't really have a plan. So I went off on an Everest base camp trek in 2005 and met a whole load of climbers there. And that inspired me to join the mountaineering club at university. So I went to Nottingham and it had a really strong climbing club. And I was taken on by this amazing climber called John Layton, who was in the army. And he had all his army climbing instructional tickets and he would teach people at the university. And so he taught me to lead using Libby Peter's book, actually. Um, and I recently met up with him. He lives in Vancouver now and we went climbing together and it felt like we'd never been apart. We'd always be mates. And he's, you know, he's 20 years older than me, but it was an amazing grounding in well, rock climbing, really, not so much mountaineering. Did, um, did rock climbing take over then or, or weren't you inspired to join the army? You know, why, why, why was it rock climbing that ruled the day? I actually did want to join the army and, until I went to university and I realised that there was tra travelling to be done without being tied to somebody. Mm. Um, it didn't really take over. I did climb a lot. I was on the committee of the university club, um, but I still wanted to play hockey. So I played hockey until I was 27 
Oh, wow. Um, and then I started working in the climbing wall and that's when it was difficult to juggle the outdoors and team sport. They just don't really go together. No, I did find that myself. And they're quite different, um, quite different socially as well, aren't they? Yeah. And very regimented, you know, Wednesday nights training, Saturday game, Sunday game, which is quite different to working in the outdoors, which is a bit more sporadic, less of a timetable. So working in a climbing wall, what were you doing in a climbing wall? Was that, was that your graduate job? How did that pan out? Oh, yeah, I started um, in boulders in Cardiff when it first opened. And I didn't have any qualifications. I did my SPA training, I think. But at the start, I was just the hoovering girl. So I'd hoover behind the walls that replaced T-nuts. Uh, and I worked my way up um, to a senior instructor and then to centre manager before I was fed up and wanted to go outside on my days off and, you know, go in the sunshine. So did, did you do a degree then? Yeah, I did a degree in archaeology. Oh, my goodness. So no, no desire to be an archaeologist? I mean... I did want to be until they put the pay scales up on the board in second year and we all realised <laughs> that we more doing the Aldi graduate scheme than being an archaeologist. I, I find it's quite a unique selling point, um, but I wouldn't say I have a particular specialism. I know quite a lot about Romano-British villas of Northamptonshire. Mm. Um, it, it's just a, you know, it was a useful degree to learn about research and reading and, yeah. and writing. Yeah, it's often a way of thinking, isn't it? You you, you know how to find out about things that, uh, that that you might come across in the hills. So I think that's that's lovely. That so so you went to climbing wall. You became a climber. You became a climbing centre manager. But you're now a mountaineering instructor and a mountain bike leader. There's still still a big chunk there, Rachel. Oh, well, I I left the climbing wall uh, and went to be a games maker at the London Olympics. Um, mm. I went travelling when I came back I didn't know what to do with myself so I'd heard about this instructor development scheme at Glenmore Lodge so I applied and I got a job so I was there it's, it's colloquially called the night watch and mm -hmm. I did that year, and that was my big springboard really into the outdoors I was able to complete lots of my qualifications there and meet lots of people which gave me lots of opportunities Mm. Had you been mountain biking as well as climbing then? Did, did they run hand in hand for you? Uh, yeah, I started mountain biking a bit later. Um, I suppose I had a bike all my life, but I never had a, a, any bikes that worked. And once I learned how to fix bikes, it opened up a few more doors to me. Interesting. So it's quite a short period of time then. We're only talking 10 years ago at uh, Glenmore Lodge there and you're now you know a well-respected busy um, role model if you don't mind me saying mountaineering is such a mountain bike leader were you supremely gifted on a bike and, or on a crag face or, or have you had to work hard to get those qualifications what advice would you have to other people perhaps in the same situation to get to where you are now I'm definitely not gifted a gifted climber. It's definitely come through hard work. Um, I think I'm generally quite physically literate in that I've done a lot of sport and, you know, running around my whole life. But um, I, I've never reached the lofty heights of, you know, climbing glitterati at all. I think I've just I think I just realised that there's more to mountaineering instruction than 
just how hard you climb and the grade that you climb. It's all about the way that you communicate with people, the way that you look after people, your risk perception, and making sure that you tailor the day to the person rather than to what you want. And I think they're things that I'm good at. And so I just worked harder, the climbing, you know, the performance side of it. I'm definitely not a good climber, as you well know, Mike. You once told me that, because I hadn't climbed Cenotaph Corner, that I wasn't a real mountaineering instructor. <laughs> oh, dear, yes. That is a bit of a bit of a dark smudge on your career there, Rachel. Uh, but I'm sure, with, uh, I'm sure if you wanted to, you could actually do that, couldn't you? I think so. I mean, it was on my list for this year, which um, the year hasn't gone quite to plan. But I have climbed the Old Man of Hoy, so I feel like... That is a good substitute. Definitely. We'll give you the old man ahoy. That's a proper route for mountaineer instructors to be doing. I love it. Um, and there'll be quite a lot I haven't done that because it's not very accessible, is it? So to to prepare for those qualifications, you gave up quite a lot, didn't you? And you, I, I remember you were living in the Climbers Club hut in the Sanbury's Pass for a while. That, tell us about that period. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd worked a lot the previous year, mostly doing Duke of Edinburgh, and I, I worked out that I did 76 nights of camping that year. And 76? Saved well, you'd think I'd be good at it by now, but I still forgot my lighter last week on an MLSS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I, I, li I stayed in the hut in the Clamores Pass in Assetis, um, along with all of the other unusual characters of, of the Climbers Club. Um, and I just went climbing all summer, which is, you know, it's a pretty fortunate and privileged position to be in, but I, I suppose I was just maximizing my opportunities. Um, I just went climbing lots. I went out with lots of different people. I went out with friends who weren't climbers, which taught me a lot. Um, I went out with some strangers, one lady I met in a car park, she had a bike, so I made friends with her and I said, oh, do you want to come climbing tomorrow? <laughs> and, uh, I learned a lot from making her climbing, a total novice. Um, and I suppose it was just the, the breadth of people that I went out with that meant that I had a really good preparation summer. There's no shortcuts, are there, to putting the time in? No. What you do, what does spring to mind there, though, is one of the things that's changed that you illustrate really well is, uh, I hate saying my day, but what used to happen is outdoor instructors always worked in outdoor centres. And now you're very representative of the generation, really, that hasn't had the opportunity to work in the LEA centres because they've been um, decreasing in number. But you have put what we'd call the hard yards in working with your DVs and in a massively wide range of sayings, haven't you? How has that panned out for you? Yeah, it's kind of a shame that I never got that opportunity to work in an LEA centre. There's a lot less of them mm. now. You know, there are still jobs there, but they're not, there aren't as many. No. Um, I think there's a freelance market now, so you can, mm. you know, work for lots of different people. I was able to work all over Scotland at various schools and for um, DOV providers where schools outsource their DOV. Um, and I've done a bit of freelancing for climbing walls, a little bit of sort of staff training for climbing walls and using my sort of leadership background through hockey and sport. I was able to do some different kinds of work that way. So I've put the time in, just not in, yeah, maybe the way that you would 30 years ago. 
Yeah, it's a different. It's different. It's quite interesting that. And I noticed um, you put a really nice little video this week of working. Were you on a mountain leader training the other day? Uh, or, assessment. Leader, yeah, assessment. And and you had a bit of rain, didn't you? <laughs> I think it's the wettest. It's certainly the wettest assessment I've ever done. In fact, there were two candidates on the course that were on training last October with us, which was the wettest training I'd ever done. Um, what I realised is despite being professional, um, that doesn't mean that your kit doesn't wear out and everything had worn out. My boots were leaking, my jacket was leaking. I had a new tent, but it wasn't very good. I forgot my lighter. Um, the lid of my stove blew away and I was really upset about it. I was searching for it and then the other assessor found it inside my tent. So I was just having one of, one of those weeks. I had really bad sort of wrinkly, pruny feet, which wasn't very nice. No. Um, but I think lots of time into that sort of expedition work that you know you always know that there's a hot cup of tea at the end of it so it'll be okay yeah it it is hard that isn't it um i don't have any comforting words about camping in the rain it's just hard and thoroughly unpleasant um but of course i always have to tell people that we don't camp for that we camp because it's brilliant because we camp because we like being in wild places and watching shooting stars and swimming in mountain lakes you know it's just that when it's programmed on the calendar you've got to go whatever the weather is and uh, they need to be able to cope with it don't they yeah and, and the candidates actually this week were very strong and, and could all cope with it so um, that was reflected in um, a clean sweep of passes which I've never seen before I've ne you know it's rare that everybody passes isn't it but that's because the weather was so bad and everyone had prepared really well and none of them said that it was the hardest day out they'd ever had that sounds brilliant that sounds good so so what is your portfolio now how do you make a living now um so the majority of work is freelance for other people mostly this year i've been teaching rock climbing so multi-pitch rock climbing and it's generally uh confidence building learn to lead refresher that sort of thing seems to be what my speciality is at the moment um, I do a little bit of mountain bike guiding work and I also tutor the leadership schemes for British cycling. Um, before COVID, that was probably taking up 70% of my time, but now it's only about 30%. And I, I think that's just because I've chosen to be at home in Wales a little bit more. So there's yeah. more. I'm also working towards the winter mountaineering climbing instructor. So climbing and mountaineering work is more relevant to that yeah. so I, and, and I know you'll prepare thoroughly for that one as well rachel do people find you through a website you is there a rachelcrewsmith.com or .co uk or something yeah there is although i think it's currently got a bot in it and it's broken it's rachelcrew.com c-r-e-w-e um but mostly my work comes through instagram um social yeah. media be quite a big draw for people nowadays um and I put a lot of time into social media last winter and that seems to have paid dividends so it, it's for all the naysayers it is worth it it's free marketing isn't it yeah yeah you do have to work it though um and have you got time for your own adventures are you climbing for fun are you mountain biking for fun I know you've done some pretty good expeditions on the bike you know what what, what what's going on in that area is that on the back seat while you prepare for this winter qualification or have you still got plans and dreams to to go off and do your own thing as well 
it's been on the back burner a little bit um, since COVID, really. Last year, everyone was catching up, making up for lost time. And, and this year, I've been preparing for this assessment. Um, I The last big trip I did, I, I guided a group, the first mountain bike crossing of the Danakil Depression in Ethiopia, mm. which is pretty amazing. Mm. Um, I've done it before. It's the hottest desert on earth, and it was completely ridiculous. It was spoiling. 50 degrees in the day. Um, but it was really fun. Uh, and I also did a big mountain bike crossing of Nepal. So we tried to do the Great Himalayan Trail by mountain bike in 2016. And we didn't make it because there were too many steps. Although someone this year has just done the Great Himalayan Trail by mountain bike. And I can fully appreciate just how hard that is. Because carrying a loaded bike up steps isn't very good. It's altitude as well. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. It's and and the pedals always stab you in the shins, don't they? Oh, don't they just? <laughs> they do that in Wales, though, Rachel. <laughs> um, something you've got involved in is is women in, um, women in the outdoors, women in mountaineering instruction. You you were prominent at the Women in Mountain Training Conference recently. You have quite a big role in the. Uh, women's trad fest um one or two other events like that how, how important do you think that aspect of what you're doing is and, and a lot of some of that must be volunteering as well surely yeah some of it's volunteering uh, the women's trad fest i've worked at since the start um i started just volunteering and then they would chuck a bit of expenses at us and now i'm actually have, I have a paid role at the women's trad fest but i would say i probably put in twice as many hours as i get paid for just the nature of the event it doesn't you know it doesn't run at a profit um and it takes a lot of takes a lot of effort and thought to create a special event like that where people are paired up not just by their experience but maybe by where they live or what stage they are in their climbing careers we pair everyone up and we recruit this uh, mentor team of professional mountaineering instructors to be positive and visible role models to the climbers at the festival um and i have quite a big part in that recruitment process and then the managing of the festival i think the thing that i really believe in is having these not just visible role models but stepping stone role models so that you don't just hold people on a pedestal as the greatest mountain guide of all time that you have these um role models that are maybe just above you just ahead of you in that in that chain that you could think oh I could be like that person so for me I had a few role models Mo Barclay for example she's a winter mountaineering climbing instructor and I thought cool maybe one day I could be like Mo um, and I'd like to think that I've been a role model like that for several upcoming mountaineering instructors now definitely yeah and the role modeling thing's interesting isn't it because it's not just a matter of um one or two people because well people are different aren't they and we recognize i think we've recognized different men for a long time but i'm slightly worried we've lumped females together as females to say oh we just need a couple of role models and, and everything will be fine they'll see there's something to aspire to but it, it is more complicated than that isn't it well there's there's loads of different ways that you can be a role model, the same with men. And it's a shame that we we gender everything in a way. Um, there was a really interesting lecture at the weekend at the Women in Mountain Training Conference 
by two researchers from Swansea University and they call themselves breaking binaries. So, so they're trying to talk about how things, you know, so many of our restrictions are gendered. They were saying imposter syndrome is a gendered construct that's been put onto women because of one study done in 1970 um, and how actually you haven't got imposter syndrome it's that the society around you is imposing that on you well it's a bit of a belt, but um i think it is important yeah to show a variety of role models and not just think oh well, there's a woman i can be like that woman because i'm never going to be libby peter and likewise i'm never going to be louisa reynolds or holly harmer who are british mountain guides because that's not what I'm aspiring to be. And so it doesn't suit my skill set to aspire to be like that person. To what degree, when we look at um, good teaching, good teaching is good teaching, whether you're talking to males, females, people from different ethnic backgrounds, people with disability, it boils down to, to good teaching and good interactions with people rather than the fact that you're talking to somebody who might be female black disabled old ginger hair whatever what do you mean what what do you mean so there's not a way of talking or managing your relationship with with female clients there's a way of managing your relationship better with all clients regardless of where they're from and what they look like yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's all about, I suppose that's the interpersonal skills that I hate to say it, but often climbers aren't very good at because, you know, I always used to joke that um, climbers weren't picked for football and that's why <laughs> that they were climbers. <laughs> and that's not really true anymore with the way that people yeah. access climbing these days, but it used to be the case. And so sometimes that went hand in hand with not having great people skills. Um, yeah. And I think you're right, teaching doesn't matter who, you know, what label you put on that person. It's all about how you build a relationship with that person. Mm. And what we're bad at at the moment, because it's fashionable to talk about diversity, is we forget that and we just say, right, well, we need some people of colour or we need some women. And we forget that those people are the same yeah, and different. I, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. People are the same and different. I like that, Rachel. That's really good. Um, how are things better than they were? Are things getting better? Yeah, I think so. I think you see, you definitely see more women in the mountains, but not just women, but women in leadership roles or or groups of women as, as equals. Um, and we're starting to see more other types of diversity. So a little bit more ethnic diversity. Um, what I think is harder to see is, do we have that geographical diversity and social diversity? So people who may be coming from Kent and can't access the mountains, are they able to access the mountains? I, I don't know how we, how we, you know, whether we can see that yet, but I do think it's becoming, you know, through branding and marketing and representation, we're starting to see more people in the hills and coming and taking part in these adventurous activities that maybe didn't realise that it was for them before. Yeah, I can definitely hear what you're saying there. I feel it's people are um, 
have less access if they're from urban backgrounds. I think class might come into that sort of social mobility and those things are, are just as, if not more important than your gender or the colour of your skin. Um, Rachel, we are moving towards the end now, um, but what I want to do is to feed back in some of your experience and advice to, to mountain leaders and um, developing mountaineering instructors. So if there were some things that you would like to say to them now, what sort of things would you like to say to mountain leaders and to new mountaineering instructors? I um I was thinking about this um this morning and I was thinking about how I think it's easy as a mountain leader to develop this um idea about the environment that you're in based on what you read on Facebook or you know whatever but I think I'd encourage people to always read and look outside of that bubble so go and read different perspectives go and meet farmers and gamekeepers and rangers and you know, read the shooting times or the farmers weekly so that you get a broader base to talk about things with the people that you're taking into the hills. Um, I think we need to pay a bit more attention to what, you know, the BMC are doing and, you know, what they're doing for access in the mountains. Um, I went to the local area meeting for the BMC recently and it was a very undiverse group of people yeah. talking about the same things. And, they brushed over all the topics that I was interested in, like the tidal energy farm off Gogarth, because they'd spent so long talking about glued-in bolts. And whilst glued-in bolts are really important, I think if there was if there were more people at that meeting, then there would have been more things discussed. So I say to people, go out and and look for that information elsewhere. Don't just don't just leave it to you know the the, the role models now to make those decisions. Absolutely. Get involved is, is what you're saying, is it? Get involved and be heard and, and be there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Rachel, we're going to have to wrap it up there, I'm afraid. But that's been a fascinating con con conversation. It just seems to have gone awfully quickly, but uh, I'm sorry about that. It's just the, the way these things seem to work. So uh, I'm going to end the recording now. And uh, thank you very much indeed. Mike.